Obi-Wan Kenobi said, your eyes can deceive you, don't trust them. It seems to be getting harder, distinguishing reality from the illusions people make for us, or from the ones we make for ourselves. I don't know, maybe that's part of the plan, to make me think I'm crazy. It's working. It's Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 92 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And we are we are extremely happy to be joined by longtime common uh, Chris Gilliard. You know, you guys you guys will know him as hypervisible on Twitter. Uh, he's also a Shorstein fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School. Just, just one of the most diligent observers and watchers of the surveillance hell that is uh, society today. Uh, you know, constant, constantly critiquing it, providing that really hard-hitting analysis of everything that's going on. Um, I, I mean, we're just, we're just happy to have you here, Chris. Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's a real pleasure, and uh, yeah, thank you. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, of your work and Edwards as well. So, it's my pleasure. Ah, well, we are huge fans of your work, so yeah. uh, we, we, we could sit here and, uh, and, and gas each other up for about 20 <laughs> minutes before the episode gets going. <laughs> Let's do it. Um, and there, there's, you know, there's just so much to talk about, but the, you know, the real excuse for having you on, which honestly, you know, we should have done a long time ago, is you just had a piece come out uh, a couple months ago, or about a month ago, in Real Life Magazine, um, called Luxury Surveillance, which you co-authored with David Columbia. You know, this is you expanding on this concept uh, and distinction between luxury surveillance and what you call imposed surveillance, which is something that you wrote about um, in an essay for Urban Omnibus back in January 2020. And I, I remember when I first came across this essay of yours and that distinction, like. It, you know, like any good analytical concept, it just threw so much in the sharp relief. Like I saw that and I was just like, damn, yeah, no, th this, this is so right. This is so dead on. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I mean, you know, first off, Dave is a brilliant collaborator. So uh, the mm. piece never would have seen the light of day without him. Um, so I, I got to give credit where it's due. Um, but I have actually even been working on a little bit before that. I did a, an article for Fast Company um, called Privacy is Not an Abstract, where mm -hmm. the luxury surveillance thing was a little bit of a throwaway line at the end, you know, where I talked about ring doorbells and, and Teslas and Fitbits. Um, but I've been wanting to expand on that for a long time. Um, and, uh, it, you know, it grew out of what I thought was a pretty mundane observation, which is that ankle monitors and Fitbits do the same thing. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I said it enough and people kind of responded enough that I thought maybe I should do a little bit more on that. Like, um, turns out maybe it's not that mundane of an observation. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, I, 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 the other thing that I like to think about or the, the, what, the reason that sprang up is trying to explain to people who are, who typically view themselves on like, the right end of surveillance, right? Like the, the people not being watched, but the watchers generally, um, trying to explain to them what the, the harms are, you know, cause right. You got to explain to people how they personally are being harmed. If you want them to stop doing something. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, sarcasm, 
uh, like <laughs> trying to explain <laughs> the harms are, are, you know, of of uh, these kind of objects, right? Um, on like on both ends of the spectrum, right? So yeah. that's where it came from. Before we dive into the um, into the luxury surveillance piece, we'd be able to. I'd love to talk a little bit about the fast company piece you wrote, and also like the time in which you wrote it. Like, if it was in response to specific debates that you saw going on, was it like uh, something you wanted to write as an intervention to how people were thinking about privacy at the time? Yeah, well, so you know, I get really upset with with some things, right? Some uh, one of it is kind of. Uh, legal privacy scholars often. Mm-hmm. Um, and this isn't all of them and, this, you know, mm-hmm. but it is widespread where there's too much talk about what the law is and not enough talk about kind of what is right and wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the other thing is this concept that in order to um, talk about privacy or teach privacy, that you have to violate people's privacy. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, I see it time and time again. So that particular article was in a response to an assignment that someone did where they encourage people to um, basically like try. Well, I'm trying to, I'm trying to like uh, be as polite as I can be. <laughs> but the assignment was essentially sending their students out to be spies, right? Like yeah. to sit mm-hmm. in the coffee house and see like, can you, what kind of bag is, does a person have? Like what kind of stickers do they have on their laptop and see if you can, um, be observant enough to like identify that person. And, um, this, the person who did this, you know, um, received a lot of positive attention, um, was on NPR was, um, you know, on CNN, uh, was written up either in the times or the post. I can't remember, maybe both. They did. Uh, yeah. They had an op-ed in, uh, times. I remember this piece it kind of blew my fucking mind. <laughs> yeah. And I got really, really upset about it. You know, because I don't, you know, I think that there's, I mean, so there, I I mean, I teach, right? And so there's a lot of ways that you could do that thing that wouldn't involve other people, right? So like part of my big thing is when you have an option to not ingest other people like into a web of surveillance, like you choose that option. Uh, um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if you wanted to, um, an assignment with like kind of equal weight would be to have the students do it on themselves. Right. Or have them do it on the professor or to, you know, like you obviously wouldn't have them do it on each other. Right. Because that involves a whole host of other problems. Um, But there are ways to do that that doesn't involve Googling strangers. And there's all these kinds of problems that come with Googling strangers. And again, like, like, I mean, I make this observation a lot, like where I'm from, if I see somebody eyeing me in like that kind of way, Mm -hmm. like we're going to have a problem. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Like, but, you know, aside from that, right. Aside from someone getting, you know, like knocked out or choked out, like it's not a thing you should do. Right. Like that is like not, um, that is not how, if we're thinking about privacy and surveillance and about people's right, people's right to obscurity, you know, in the way that like Hartzog and Salinger talk about it, like you don't go places and like, you know, you don't like turn your students into narcs, right? 
Like, mm-hmm. And so that, like, I, like I could actually talk about this for the whole episode. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, you just like you know, like you press like that button because I'll never not be upset about this. Listeners can't see, but but when oh, you were describing yeah. that, my face was scrunching up. Yeah, <laughs> it's like it doesn't make any sense as an assignment. When I first read your piece on it, and then realized that, that it was about this op-ed. That uh, if people are not familiar with, basically, like this professor, um, she told her students, hey, like, go out to coffee shops and try to de-anonymize people. And they did it pretty easily. And your essay was really great because one of the, I mean, there's so many things that come up. But one of the most obvious glaring things is there's no consideration of the fact that, as you say, like the first sentence, surveillance is used almost explicitly for black and brown and marginalized people, right? Targeting them. And I think that that is missing, absent in most of the discussion and reflection of the essay and also the discourse that came out around Mm -hmm. it. Absolutely. You know, that it was, it was kind of like, it was, like you said, they abstracted it as if we all have the same sort of protections as if the law is like a neutral arbiter for everybody in this instance and as if like there aren't technologies and procedures that are targeting very specifically communities and groups of people and and the piece felt that op-ed felt like so uh bizarre you know uh, to <laughs> to read and also to see i think like an i I feel like, but I don't know because I didn't follow the subsequent discussions, but it felt like it ended up structuring like how people then wanted to talk about privacy and like what what kind of privacy reforms or what kind of regulations need to be in place so that you can't be de-anonymized in a public setting instead of stepping back and asking like, why the fuck do we have so much surveillance technology in the first place? Yeah. And it, it also, I mean, it illustrates, it's kind of that sort of proof of concept thing that mm-hmm. like a lot of hackers and bad actors and, you know, um, use to say like, I did this bad thing to show that it was a bad thing or to show that this bad thing was possible. Um, which again, right. Like we have authoritarian governments for that. Like we don't need like the devil doesn't need an advocate, like in the, in these like measures. Right. Like Mm -hmm. again, like there's so many other ways to, I mean, I teach, you know, and this is like, uh, uh, this was like, uh, a league. These were le- uh, law students, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I don't know if they were one L two, whatever they were, but I teach these concepts to, to first year students, right. In my composition classes. And these I don't were three L law <laughs> students, right. They were yeah. third year in their last year of law school. <laughs> right. So I teach this to like incoming, you know, first year students, right. In, co- in a comp class. Um, and I don't need to, uh, engage them in violating other people's privacy to convey these lessons. Uh-huh. Um, so like, presumably these students would be more advanced. I mean, I don't know the answer to that. Like they're supposed to be. Um, and so, yeah, if, you know, if I can do that with first year students, um, then yeah, there's gotta be a yeah, better way. Th- this is all, I, I must've purged this from my brain. Cause when, <laughs> you, when you guys are talking about this, I was like, huh? what like like i didn't remember what this was but now it's like all coming back to me and uh yeah this was two years ago yeah i just purged this from my brain because i was like this discourse is too bad <laughs> i can't i can't keep this in my mind <laughs> yeah. yeah it was before i got it was before i was writing and i was i remember seeing it on twitter and reading about it 
and <laughs> being flabbergasted and being and um, I remember I had been talking with a, a friend of mine who was going off to, to law school actually to do like privacy stuff. They don't they're not doing it anymore. I think they're doing a labor law. But um, uh, this they were like pretty gung ho about this. They were like really excited about this, and they were hoping that more professors like think of even more intrusive uh you know experiments like this to just show how little privacy people had and it's like i don't know <laughs> 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 it's like please, yeah. please don't go into privacy law if you want to do that <laughs> yeah it, it is it is bizarre though it is bizarre because you know you read the justifications that this professor has for it and it's just like oh i wanted to show how much like you know, privacy in public, like it is a thin social construct, right? But it's like, do you, are, is the way to do that to then go and have everybody act in like, uh, you know, some CIA agents, like, you know, observing everybody and taking detailed notes or overhearing conversation. I mean, it just seems like there's so many better ways to go about seeing uh, yeah, I mean, like the kinds of things you're talking about in the the luxury versus imposed surveillance, like it seems so much more interesting mm-hmm. and revealing to instead be like, go sit at a Starbucks and see if you can overhear someone, you know, giving their credit card information over the phone uh, or, 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 you know, like look over their screen at their computer and see if you can find out who this person is to instead be like, uh, I don't know, go go around and look and see where are all the things that are collecting data about you or about other people. Um, like, I don't teach much anymore. Uh, I've been on research for a while, but I, you know, I did do this when I, when I was teaching classes, you know, about smart cities, I would go, I would assign something similar to students, but instead I would be like, keep a diary of all the instances throughout your every day that you think you are being surveilled in some way, right? Like, like you're walking down the street, you're taking the train, you know, you're, 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 you're ordering food, like whatever, like keep a detailed sur- like surveillance diary, be like, how are you being watched? And I feel like that is a much more, uh, you know, not a two mile norm, but a much more interesting and revealing way of understanding um, what, privacy in public actually means and surveillance instead of being like you go out there and be another surveiller another thing surveilling other people (laughs) i mean the analogy i made on twitter is like you could you could reason like along if you follow that logic you could have people going through other people's garbage right it's not illegal i mean in many states like you know, and that's like, what the I paparazzi think, do. It's not against the law. It's not I against think, the law. It's hard work. It's an honest <laughs> living. <Yeah. you> know? <laughs> I think when I make that analogy, like it's pretty immediately obvious what's wrong with that. I mean, I would hope, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but like it, I, I think it's very comparable. Um, you know, and so like that's not a thing that I mean, I sure certainly wouldn't encourage students to do that, right? Not. And, you know, I, I think the, you know, pedagogically, it's like not a very sound approach. Um, so like yeah. there, there's, there's like a, there's dozens, if, you know, or not, if not hundreds of better ways. Mm. So, and I think that that connects real nicely then to the, like this thinking about like, as you write at the end of that essay about the disparate harms um, of these surveillance regimes and how these sort of experiments these abstractions ignore and flatten all of that. And then opening up, you know, this really great essay with 
I think an extension of that, uh, the example, the analogy you had at the end with like, <clears throat> you know, GPS trackers, right? And how for uh, for incarcerated people, they are explicitly punitive, disciplinary, and they, they collect this information so that they can ensure you do this or that, so they can get fines from you, so they can get revenue for the state from you. Everybody knows that, or not, or that's like very obviously the purpose, but then once people are paying for it, right? Or once this like commercial or this uh, consumer product veneer is added, all of that gets lost or obscured or transformed, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and I, I think you, you brought up another thing. I mean, I think in the next iteration of, of this um, project or this like, kind of line of thinking, what I want to do is like have an X and Y axis and have, um, you know, imposed in luxury and then explicit and ambient, mm-hmm. you know, mm. as the other axis. Um, because I do think that those, those categories are, or that like graphing it in that way um, also would help people. Um, it helped me, I mean, to be honest, but it would help other people uh, conceptualize some of this stuff in, in ways that I, I don't think, um, I think there's a little bit of a gap in the scholarship. I mean, um, I haven't seen it yet. I mean, I'm sure Ashland's listening. and is like, you should check this out. Um, but I haven't <laughs> seen it yet. So like, I'd, you know, it's a thing I'd like to do. No, I, th- I, th- I think that's, I think that's exactly right. Chris is that there's definitely a gap in the scholarship. There's a lot of space here to explore both of those axes. Um, and I mean, just for, for listeners, I'll give uh, your definitions, uh, you, your really nice, succinct definitions of these two, um, of the luxury and imposed axis. So you write, and all of this will be in the the, the show notes, links to Chris's articles on this. Um, but you write, luxury surveillance is expensive, voluntary, and sleek, yet often meant to be noticed. Imposed surveillance is involuntary, overt, clunky, and meant to stand out. Uh, you know, and 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 they might functionally be doing the same exact operations, but it's just about the the kind of the the social relations that they're tied into, right? The 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 values and meanings that are imposed upon them um, is what is the really the only thing that separates uh, the operations of some luxury surveillance from imposed surveillance. But I think what that what this really shows is that it's not enough to just think about the operations of the technology of like a GPS, uh, you know, bracelet, but to think about all of the, as you put it, right, this this larger web of social relations and power dynamics and histories and structures, like all of this stuff is what actually makes this meaningful, right? In other words, the politics of it. The politics of it is what actually separates luxury versus imposed surveillance, not necessarily even the actual like technical operations of the thing itself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're in many cases the exact same thing. Um, you know, uh, I use this example often. Uh, I think I, I have taken this particular example from Andrew Ferguson um, when he talked when we were talking about ring doorbells. Um, you know, and yeah, of course that was going to come up. Um, that like if if law enforcement went to everyone's door and said, "Hey, we want to put like a camera on your door." And watch every time you come in and out and who else comes in and out of your house, right? Like many people would chafe at that, 
league, right? Like, many people would like, um, even people who consider themselves, um, what's the right way, who don't consider themselves the typical target of law enforcement, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but just that it would be the idea that it would be imposed, right? Um, and that they would be the ones being watched uh, is what would uh, make people very reluctant to do so. Uh, however, you know, when, when people buy ring doorbells and with the idea that it's looking out at their porch and onto the sidewalk and street, that they're not the object of the surveillance. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, whether they are or not, I mean, they are, but whether they, whether they think they are or not is kind yeah. of like, not like particularly relevant to them when they're buying it. Right. Like they're mm-hmm. not thinking about that. I think, uh, Amazon pur- purely put the ring out as a means to catch porch pirates, people that are stealing people's packages. Cause you think generally think about it, the, the, the demographic of someone that's going to buy a ring doorbell and who's also buying a bunch of shit from Amazon and having it delivered to their house. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is like before the ring doorbell, if, if like someone stole your Amazon package off your porch, Amazon was on the hook for that. Right. Like, I mean, like it's like, it seems like a very, again, like a, a pretty mundane observation. Right. But like, um, and I, I'm sure like I'm simplifying it a little bit, but like a big part of the reason this thing now exists is because Amazon didn't want to be on the hook for, for packages that were stolen off people's right. packages. So now we have mm-hmm. like a even more, you know, another layer of surveillance in our society because of Amazon. It also makes me think of, you know, I've noticed a shift in some of the advertising and the messaging around Alexa from simply being like a home assistant to being like a totally aware agent in your home. Like not only providing for your needs, but guarding your, your territory. You know, like I'm, I saw this ad, the must've been yesterday where uh, there was just like a knock, like just a random knock. They're like, Alexa, who's at the front door? And then, (laughs) and then, and then the ring camera wakes up and and they see, oh, okay. It's a package from Amazon. It's fine. And and I mean, Oh no! And then it's like similar to the uh, the um, there was an ad they had where it was uh, no I Michael B. Jordan. Yes, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, yeah, what I'm talking okay, about. We started on that one. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, one of the uh, definitely one of the worst was that they came up with uh, that had so many of like the themes and ideas they keep they threaded off into separate ad campaigns. But one that kept coming through in that ad, I felt like was like, um, you like Alexa is yours. You know, Alexa is you know your property, <laughs> and not only just your property, but it will it's it's like a person, but yeah. not really a person. Um, and it will it will do anything that you need it to do. One of which ends up becoming watch every single thing and treat, treat everyone like a suspect. But also the ad is very different. Like there are other things that they have in there, right? You know? <laughs> I mean, I've got this whole thing. <laughs> a, a friend of mine, we have this whole thing where someone's got to write that essay. So mm-hmm. just for reference, right? There's this. Uh, <laughs> it, it played during the Super Bowl. Yes. So this like this yeah. um, this this uh, commercial where. This um, um, black woman imagines um, she embodies Alexa as Michael B. Jordan. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like Michael B. Jordan in the commercial, you know, when she says, you know, she's in the bath and she wants music, and she says, "Alexa, play this." That's Michael bath, Jordan, yeah, kind of playing the music, you know? right? Yeah. And he's out on the lawn, you know, the sprinklers going, and you know, wetting him down, and like all this stuff. Like it's, you know, so much so that her her partner 
gets becomes jealous of Alexa, who is Michael B. Jordan. And, you know, it, like this weird way in which they um, there's been, you know, or um, the, the the Spike Lee cryptocurrency ad or Bitcoin. Ad, right? <laughs> there's this weird way in which co-opting blackness and embodied blackness in, in like technology mm-hmm. um, is becoming like a, a significant aspect of how these products are sold. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and and particularly for the Alexa, um, you know, like that notion that like your, you know, um, digital servant is this like sexy black man. Like, you know, I don't even know where to start with. I mean, I don't even know where to start (laughs) with, but like. It's, (laughs) it is like such a weird evolution of like the magical decro trope transformed in a way where it's like, no, and that's not racist because like they're, they're black and they're, they're, they can do things you can't do. Right. Yeah, but yeah. also they're sexy, so it's not like usually when they would have when they would have characters who are magical, you know, black characters who are magic magical, it ends like they make them like like unappealing or unsightly into one way or another to try to signify like, oh, they're older, they've been like ravaged by time or like the magic or something like that. But here it's like, oh no, it's okay, it's totally fine. He's he's fine, he's attractive, um, yeah. he's magical, right? And, you know, to, to the other, you know, the third kind of arm of that is, um, is running like, uh, deep fakes isn't the right word, but they're, they're running those, uh, where they animate the photos of dead people. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, deep nostalgia, mm-hmm. right? Mm. And lots of people are using that on, on, uh, you know, historical black figures like Frederick Douglass and Ida B. Wells and things like that. Um, I want to write a paper on that at some point. Like, oh, please, yes. I, it's like, it's super gross and like problematic. Um, I'm not doing a good job of explaining why at this moment, but um, I mean, but it feels like, the, it feels like the progenitor of that was like the Tupac hologram. Yeah. yeah. Part of it, I feel like is, you know, a lot of these technologies are appendages or like spring right out of surveillance tech um that is just targets black people, like almost exclusive or has been developed on targeting black people and, and so I think like there is a like up front like always a gross level feels when it's like okay they use the insights they got from facial recognition surveillance to create these tools that allow you to like move the mouths of uh you know dead black figures. Uh they're using they're like doing deep fakes or they're doing like these animated holograms, you know, for like even bigger commercial enterprises. And also using or, or using them to like bolster some commercial enterprise that would then bolster like more of the surveillance in another part of this company's empire, I'm sure, for other vendors that it's connected to. Yeah, I mean, this makes me think of like uh, Simone Brown's work on Dark Matters, right? I mean, her mm. just brilliant book uh, that, you know, came out in 2015 and every day just seems more and more prescient, right? And just like, <laughs> like you could write a new edition of that book every single month, it seems like, and add a bunch of new uh, examples of the exact kinds of things that she's talking about, how the ways that she talks about how like the the operations of surveillance is in it, it uh, is unable to be separated from the conditions of blackness as she puts it in in the book right and these things are so intimately linked with each other and i mean i think that you know going going back to your kind of relationship here between imposed surveillance and luxury surveillance that is such an obvious 
uh, feature of this distinction as well is that that racial element there that uh, what imposed surveillance is when it happens to um, people of color, especially black people uh, in, in the United States. Um, and luxury surveillance is when it's like, uh, I don't know, people like me, right? Like like white you know, <laughs> professionals, like we get the luxury surveillance. Um, when you see a company like Amazon try to market luxury surveillance you know, quite uh, in a really just like like overt, explicit way to um, you know to to black and brown people being like, oh no, you're a market for this luxury surveillance too. It just right. comes off as so like 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 creepy, right? And so weird. And it's just like, oh, like you don't know how to do this. You don't know how to market <laughs> luxury surveillance to black people because you've never done that before. <laughs> and so it just comes off as so off-putting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, everything you said, I mean, uh, anybody, like I don't I imagine there's any anybody listening who hasn't read Simone Brown. Um, but if there is, like uh, right after this podcast is over, you should go mm -hmm. read that book. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, yeah, there's just, it's, it's so much, so, so prescient, but, and like, so like still applies like every single day. This isn't, you know, completely on topic, what you guys are talking about, but this is more of just like a, something I remember experiencing when I was younger, but I went, I went to elementary school in Mississippi, part of middle school as well. But in elementary school, we had two separate lines, one for white kids and one for black kids to take pictures. And the white kids had a, a, a darker background and the black kids had a whiter background. Mm -hmm. And I asked the teacher why they did that. And they said, well, that's so if the cops need to find them, they get a better look at their face with a white background. Oh my God. This wasn't the seventies, man. This was like the late eighties. They were saying shit like that. Just, out and open yeah and we talked about this in a in an episode a while back ago that uh yeah i mean jeremy and i are both from biloxi mississippi and and uh in in right after uh 9 11 so like like 2002 or something like that um our school system was like uh making national news and there's like a big new york times article and all this about uh, because we, uh, the Biloxi school system um, was on the cutting edge of, of surveillance uh, in, in every, like, like every classroom, every hallway had, was covered by surveillance cameras. The uh, uh, principals were able, were like the, like the principal's office was basically, you know, uh, like that scene, for, you know, like, like you imagine, uh, you know, uh, a security guard looking at a big bank of monitors, you know, watching all the surveillance systems in like an action movie or something like that. But that's what the principal office actually was um, in, in the in the Biloxi school system is the principals were had just become watchers. They become observers. They were able to look at these real time CCTV feeds and, and you know, just all like, uh, again, you know, no, no, no coincidence that Biloxi, Mississippi, which as Jeremy just threw in the chat, had a, uh, is one of the biggest casino cities in the U.S. as well. And so the school system gets a lot of money from the casinos, but where do they put that money from the casinos? 
into outfitting all of the schools with cutting edge surveillance technology from the casinos probably, <laughs> or for the vendors. Yeah. The yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. They, I, I, I'm, I'm sure. Right. I'm sure that they, that the, like the school superintendent was probably meeting with like the head of security for the Beau Rivage or something like that. And being like, how do y'all do surveillance in the casino? Can we do that in my high in the in the elementary schools and the high schools? <laughs> this feels like the last season of Ozarks on steroids. Oh my god! Yeah, I'm just I'm just imagining Joe Pesci playing the uh, principal of Biloxi High School. <laughs> you know, just behind these banks of monitors. You know, what are these fucking kids doing over here in uh, room 32? They don't look like they're learning anything. Get that motherfucker up here. Let me talk to them. <laughs> <laughs> all, the, all the teachers are just pit bosses all of a sudden yeah. <laughs> but just fire all the teachers and hire pit bosses yeah yeah so next up right until ai can do it then then we get that yeah Like these examples of these different kinds of surveillance, they're just, I mean, one of the things that really stood out to me why I loved this uh, analytical concept and distinction you made is because, you you know, you said at the top of the show, oh, it you know, seems like a mundane observation. And in some ways it is, right? But I think what makes it powerful is it's pointing out uh, this this kind of like dual condition that coexists next to each other. And it's like mundane for some people and extraordinary for other people. I think that's one of the things that really distinguishes uh, imposed versus luxury surveillance is what's mundane for others and what's extraordinary for others, right? For people that like uh, have imposed surveillance on them, right? Like, you know, the, the, you know, incarcerated people or people on parole, um, or just any other examples. And we'll go through some, other, we'll talk through some other examples of this distinction, but for, for them, like the idea of luxury surveillance is extraordinary. Like, I'm sorry, you're doing what? on purpose yeah. and you're paying for it, you yeah, know, yeah. whereas for people that get luxury surveillance, the idea that this could be used for some kind of punitive measure is extraordinary to them. They're like, my Fitbit could be used to do what, uh, for, for why, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, and it, it applies even, you know, to smart city. I mean, when, when you and I were talking as I was writing that urban omnibus piece, you know, another way we could think about it is uh, here in Detroit, I mean, we have Project Greenlight, um, mm. you know, which is this massive uh, surveillance system um, that's built on the notion that, uh, you know, um, putting up cameras and feeding them to a fusion center is going to reduce crime. Um, and, you know, like in some ways, again, like uh, a lot of the uh, uh, mechanisms that are uh, uh, imposed on cities that are um, supposed to reduce crime are on the other kind of end of that spectrum are like mechanisms that a smart city would have, you know, smart city uh, would have um, that are supposed to cater to the residents. Right. And so we see like, we can see like, like depending on who's the, like who is being observed, right. Like, and what, you know, what the rationale is for these, for these um, mechanisms, like, again, like do some of the very same things, but like 
serve kind of different um, populations. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it's just kind of like a downward. Yeah, it's like uh, the, when I so the more and more I talk about it, the more like discouraging it gets, right? Yeah. So, like, <laughs> but it's just like it's it's layered from like, um, and I, I was about to say individual um, objects, um, but they're not individual, and that's part of the problem, right? Is mm-hmm. that um, people tend to think of these devices or tools. Um, these, uh, as like individual things, but often they're, Mm -hmm. they're ingesting and sucking up like the data, you know, the face, the biometrics of like people who are, who didn't purchase them, don't want them, don't want to be a part of those systems. And so they're not individual, but like the, what I, what I was, what I meant to say is that like, it's even from like kind of smaller scale objects like Fitbits and the, the Amazon thing that like, um, like watches your tone of voice, listens to your tone of voice. The halo, the halo. You know, so it's like just from there all the way up to like you know um, cameras everywhere in the city and and sensors in the road and like and like all these things, right? So it, it scales from like uh, wearables all the way up to like um, you know citywide structures. Yeah, you know that makes me think of there's that section in your essay where you talk about how people will think or people will buy into a technology. They may get behind one because they, they feel socially disempowered. Part of the answer about, you know, and, and the previous question, and what purpose is served by this two-pronged approach to promoting surveillance, um, where it where you were talking about how it looks different or how it presents as differently to different people, but it's still the same sort of surveillance just perceived differently. Uh, part of the answer clearly has to do with power, privilege, and one's perceptions of them. People who feel socially disempowered, often sensitive to, or at least aware of, the presence of imposed surveillance, whereas those who align with power either ignore or welcome it as a luxury. When people believe, often correctly as it happens, that social power is on their side, when they see themselves as the ones doing the watching, they believe that such technology works in their favor, and they will gladly pay to wear or install it. They might even demand it, despite the fact that the benefits it offers may be illusory, or accrue largely to others, and it will likely worsen the, the conditions that made the technology seem attractive to them in the first place. And then the example used right after is, you know, the ascendance of this home surveillance tech, uh, and you know whether it's ring surveillance cameras or the next door or the uh, the neighbors apps, or, but specifically ring and the neighbors app that networks users and the police departments and a lot of police departments to request surveillance footage from these ring cameras. They do all that because they think, oh, okay, like I'm going to feel safe. I'm going to feel secure. I'm going to feel, um, you know, more, you know, better in my neighborhood. And I can walk around it. But in reality, that doesn't actually happen for them, right? That they still feel as unsafe as they thought they did when they got that tech or less safe, right? Because it produces anxiety and because it continues to produce anxiety by having it, by worrying about it, by checking it, by the messaging that comes out of it, by the way that these these social networks that emerge out of like watching your neighborhood turn you into like a, a you know, a vigilante of sorts and make you watch everyone and suspect everyone. And so in the in what it ends up doing is like pr- reproducing and producing this need for the security from this a surveillance empire, but it but it never actually comes, and so you just keep buying in more and more and, and rationalizing more and more the surveillance. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the like, the two things I want to comment on on what you said in that quote is like there's no independent research mm-hmm. that says that um, these um, systems yes. do the things that Amazon, you know, or, or Google claim they do. Like none. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Alfred Ng did like a really good piece a little while ago where he talked to police and some of them were pretty honest about whether or not it, um, you know, rings actually like reduced crime, mm-hmm. you know, and like one of the things they said, so like, you don't have to take my word for it. One of the things that they said is it escalates like things that they normally wouldn't be called for, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So like, um, normally they wouldn't be called for package theft or like someone toilet papering your house or, or things like that, or wouldn't have to respond or, you know, could just be like, ah, yeah, like, you know, could dismiss it in a way that they're not able to now that someone's got footage about it. Like the, the example I always use is, you know, some kids egg in my car in my neighborhood and my neighbor asking me if I wanted the ring footage for it. Um, right. Like, you know, like I don't call police for things like that. Um, so that like, they don't work. Right. But the other thing is that like surveillance, you know, I think, again, this is like a thing I don't think gets discussed enough is surveillance is like its own. It's like a, a perpetual motion machine, right? Mm-hmm. Like, because the assumption is that it works. And in any case where it doesn't work, the answer is always more surveillance. <laughs> like, right. So like, like, so everyone starts with the idea not everyone but most often you know and the people selling these things you know law enforcement like the assumption is that like um watching more or watching something like surveillance works right um i got some theories on that but whatever um but like when it proves not to work like uh the the solution is more so like if the ring doorbell isn't doing it for you like now you got neighbors and now you got like Amazon sidewalk so you can extend the range of your cameras and then you'll have drones, right? Like, again, not a thing I'm making up, like, you know, a thing that's actually been mm. proposed, right? And it's like on and on and on, right? Like then you'll have, um, you know, little delivery bots that also have cameras on them, like patrolling your neighborhood, right? Like, like all these things. So, yeah. And I don't, I do think again, like owners of ring have spoken to this and like, reporting of Del Cameron and Carolyn Haskins, right? Where that, you know, get constantly getting these like warnings about someone on your porch or someone in your neighborhood, you know, or even you use the word vigilante, Edward, right? Mm-hmm. So like, you know, to talk about citizen, right? Like so like yeah. <laughs> you know, like that Which is not you know that, to be vigilantes. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like getting warnings like, oh, a crime, a crime, you know, happened near you you know, five minutes ago, right? Want to watch? (laughs) (laughs) What is this doing to us? You know, I don't think it makes us safer. And I do think it produces like lots more anxiety, which, you know, increases people's desire for the product that claims to be solving the issue. Yeah. You know, here in New York, one of the things that bewilders me, I mean, it it isn't like, it's one of those things where I get why it happens and, but to still watch it is a sight. Um, And it's like the eternal expansion of cops in the, in the Metro stations. I've been coming back here for years and every single time I come back, they say fair evasion is getting higher. So let's put in more cops. Oh, Oh, for some reason it keeps, it hasn't gone down. Let's put in more cops. 
Damn, that's crazy. It still hasn't gone down. We need more cops. Maybe we should put cameras. Maybe we should do phone only station, like phone only um, devices at the station, so that we can eventually make it so you can't hop it. Like maybe we need just more cops. Maybe we need undercover cops. You know? <laughs> maybe we need cops in the station hiding in a room, watching through the cameras that we put in, so that we can stop people from. It just never ends. It has never ended, and it will never end on this logic. Like, it, you know, as you've talked about, you know, like it feels like it's at a certain point, it's not even really about uh, this purported outcome of stopping fervation or making community safer. Right. Yeah. It's like filling the need of this thing to reproduce itself over yeah. and over and over again. I mean, that's, um, you know, uh, so there's this company that does automatic license plate readers and now they're doing them in people's neighborhoods. Nice. And <laughs> um, one of their, I mean, I bring this up because it's like patently absurd. So part of their, they, what they call their mission is to eliminate crime, you know, and we heard Zuckerberg say some, some similar things, right. Yeah. <laughs> eliminate crime. Right. And they're backed by like some high profile VC, you know, or um, some high, high profile VCs and, and things like that. And it's like, you know, like, I mean, look, start with wage stuff. Start on Wall Street, right? Like, mm-hmm. if you're really trying to eliminate yeah. crime, you know, like, that that's where you should go, right? Like, don't bother people fucking stealing somebody's, you know, package that they, you know, is probably fucking their hot sauce for the week or something. Like, you know, like, I, like, yeah. <laughs> it's wild, you know, there's so, it's, it's also one of the things is like, as you touched on a bit, we also just don't have so much information. We don't know about, um, I mean, there's no independent re- review, like you're saying, or no like study that's saying, oh, like the ring cameras have cut down crime and this or that, right? Uh, this or that way. We also don't even know, you know, one thing I would be interested in, but I don't even know if it would be worth it is figuring out like the, the stuff that act- people actually get stolen from them um, measured against like the responses and what actually happens as a result of it. Like, okay, you got... Like you said, you got your hot sauce stolen for the week. So you called the cops and then they arrested someone and threw them in, you know, in a, in a, a jail cell for a bit or gave them a ridiculous fine. Like, is it is that, I mean, of course, none of that should even happen in the first place. But I feel like the constant creeping of like escalating police presence and criminalizing even more so things that people just kind of ignored every single day um, also like raises the limits on what people are fine with, like as the, as the outer upper limit of violence Mm -hmm. and of coercion and of surveillance, right? If the base level every day is like soon as some sort of inconvenience happens, it's a criminal matter. Then it it, it makes, or feels to me like then that the upper bounds of it, right? People are fine with force being wielded in situations they might not have been previously because everything just gets escalated. I mean, this is absolutely true. Like, you know, I, like one of the things, you know, I think is at the root of this, um, you know, like when I said, I don't, I like, I would never call the police for my car getting egged. Like if my car got egged every day, I would just go buy like, you know, a couple gallons of white vinegar. Like I'm not calling the police about that because like, this is a thing that might wind up with someone dead, you know? And so like my inconvenience is not worth that. And, you know, like, I don't, I think there's a lot of people who have a very different perspective. I don't know how we change that. Um, but I, I do think you're, you're absolutely right on that, Edward. 
Have you seen interventions that have helped to it? Because I think that's something we've also talked about how like part of the work going on here is like the, the real belief that like convenience is to be honored above all else. And like if something gets in the way of that, that's the real problem, you know, like, yeah, yeah, you know, like ride hail has these horrible labor conditions, but like, how else are you going to get around town in like a minimal amount of time? Or how else are you going to satisfy like, you know, late night desires for like this or that? And I feel like similarly, you know, a lot of things are justified under the veneer of like, I want it or like, or we're told that if we want something, we should go for it maybe. Cause I feel, cause I also feel like when people are given the chance to or pushed to they're not they don't work in that fashion that's just like how we are pushed and like molded and encouraged to act um so yeah i'm curious like what you think in terms of like what you've seen with surveillance tech like what finds purchase with people and convincing them to like step back uh and ask if they really do need to participate in this i am still working on that you know i mean i think that that is part of why i'm i'm uh, you know i'm trying to develop this taxonomy um, is to get people to think about that differently, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I hate to resort to this, but like, we really do need like a more, a better ethic, right. About like how we think about uh, ourselves and, and who our community are and things like that. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, and I, I use that not only in like, if I have a package, if I must order something and I have a package I'm expecting and I can't be home, I asked the kid next door to look out for it. Right. Or I asked, like, I actually, I asked my actual neighbor to look out for it. Right. Um, and like, you know, I, I like in some ways I hate to resort to what might perhaps seem like a, like conservative argument, right? Like get to know the person next door. Right. Like, um, but it, in some ways, some of those things I do think are answers to inserting Jeff Bezos into like every relationship we have. With surveillance, I, I you know I think one of the inroads is that most people um, object to surveillance uh, theoretically by diff- by different groups, right? Some people don't like the idea of the government watching them. Some people don't like the idea of corporations watching them. Some people hate both. And I think one of the inroads, I mean, and I, I know this is just in my teaching, right? One of the inroads is like to think about like what, how, who, who do people envision they don't want to have that like surveillance power over them and to meet them there. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms like of kind of Amazon writ large and things like that, or, you know, gig economy, I don't know because like the, the abuses are like pretty well documented. Um, uh, you know, I say this as someone who's never had Uber or, um, Lyft on their phone, right. Who's never used DoorDash or any of those other things. Um, you know, but, and again, I acknowledge that this is pretty privileged. There are some people who, uh, have had to rely on these, these systems, particularly in the past, like year and a half, two years. Um, and so they serve a real function. Um, but I think that some of them could exist in ways that aren't, you know, abusive or, you know, like, or surveillance laden or things like that. How we get there, like, I mean, is like such, I, I mean, the, is like the foundational issue, right? Or like how we get people to think about like, um, you know, like at what cost convenience, um, I, 
yeah, I definitely don't have the answer to that. Like I'm, I'm working on it in like my area, but that, that mm-hmm. is like a really, I don't want to say it's intractable, but it's like a super difficult problem. It does seem like the only two options presented to us are uh, fortress or prison, right? Either you're going to live your life like a fortress, right? You're, you're, you know, the, the, the man's home is his fortress and the smart home is a smart fortress, right? And so it's like, uh, either you're going to do that or, or you're going to live your life like you're in prison. Even if you're not actually in prison, right? The prison comes with you. Um, and it, it does seem like, like those are the only two options, only two ways of living, uh, presented to us, especially, you know, in the, in the United States where these, uh, the, these contradictions just, just continually heighten. And I think, and what you're getting at here as well, Chris, is that like, you know, that, that the third option is never put on the table, right? The option of, of, of community, uh, for example, or, you know, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know, like fortress and prison both have such a, a, a hyper individualized, uh, you know, tone to it, right? Either you're, you're, you're hyper individualized in the, you know, you, you're protecting, you're protecting yours against, um, against society, right? You are against society or, you know, the prison, you are isolated, from society, but in either way, society is something to uh, that is something antagonistic to you, or something that you don't get to to, to engage with. Um, never is it that the option of what would it look like to actually, you know, engage in society, engage in community, be part of of society. There, there does seem to be such a you know an antisocial bordering on sociopathy. Uh, you know, embedded into a lot of these technologies, into the logics of them. And, and, and it's that vicious cycle that you were talking about, Ed, where it's like it perpetuates itself. It's a continue, it's a perpetual motion machine of sopia, uh, sociopathy, right? Like um, we are constantly told uh, that you have no privacy in public, right? To go back to the top of the episode, right? You have no privacy in public. So how do you get around that? By building up a fortress around yourself. That's the only way you're going to have any privacy. Um, or, you know, society is out to get you, right? We're told that by the marketing of these technologies. We're told that by the the, the nightly news every night, right? That, uh, that society is out to get you. So you better arm yourself. You better be equipped and you better be ready to fight that battle against society. Um, or, yeah, and or or you are taken outside of society. You're put in the asylum. You're put in isolation. You're put in the prison. Um, it, it does just seem like like these technologies re- rely upon and perpetuate, uh, uh, yeah, an antagonistic view of society. Right? I mean, that's what the militarization of police is. Right? It's like everybody, you know, society is a problem. Right? I'm a cop, and society is my enemy. Yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, I don't know what to do with that. With that information, other than being like, I don't know, <laughs> build a society, engage, <laughs> do community, yeah. uh, do you know, be part of a collective. Um, but but it does seem like the the constant trends and and logics um, and technologies and and so on and so forth are are constantly pushing uh, against that that view of society as anything but something to either be feared um, or something that you don't get to to participate in
you know, I think also maybe in, in the thread of the Luddites, one thing I always think about with these sorts of network technologies is, is there any value in like, uh, like convincing people, maybe not like every single person, but convincing people that maybe one mode of resistance is sabotage or destruction um because i feel well i mean in of itself it's pretty you know it's a pretty dangerous thing because for example like with ring it's a fucking camera so you know like um but uh, but i think maybe uh one i think about you know the i guess some of the thrust of the luddites and how the i guess maybe thinking about like the point of the sabotage was also to try to get people to think about how there would be a cost if they used these things or if they are to get people to start talking about maybe in today's world, I guess, about whether or not um, it is okay to have these things. Um, because I feel like most of the discussion persists or stays around the level of like, why is Amazon making Ring or Nextdoor uh, making this website or Neighbors networking versus like, um, not individual role in it, but like how to, I guess, how to, how to combat the paranoia or the anxiety that people may feel in the suburbs, but also at the same time it feels messy. Cause it's like there, it's easy to then slip into like a blaming the consumers and only the consumer and not the company or the larger social conditions or larger structures that make people feel like they need to get these texts. Right. Cause they're socially disempowered, but I don't know. I, I guess maybe, yeah, I, the question in a roundabout way is like, what, do you think that there is or that other that it makes sense or that it would ever make sense with these sort of network tags for people to as a form of resistance to their to find a way to sabotage or whether like that is in of itself not effective because of the size of the thing or the way that it actually works or the way that we even think and talk about it like that just wouldn't make a dent i mean look like there's always room for imposing social cost for doing things that shouldn't be done um you know and like to to uh call up a a a recent example is like look at google glass right like a big part of the reason like everyone's not wearing those on their faces right now is that the social cost that was extracted from people who did wear them um you know like we'll see uh you know what the the will is to continue to enforce that is you know, Facebook's like metaverse comes about. Oh, yeah, fuck know, the and, AR. Like, <laughs> right? like, you know, because we've seen, um, you know, we've seen like uh, certain Facebook execs like be really coy about like, oh, we'll see what the community wants, you know, um, and things like that. Uh, you know, when like, and, and again, we've seen this with Amazon when like they're asked when or if they're going to put facial recognition on rings, right? Um, they talk about, well, we'll see what the community wants, right? And community in their mind means consumer, right? And as soon as they feel like there's um, not going to be significant pushback against it, they're going to try and slip it in. So I do think that that is, um, I, I think that notion of social cost is important. But also I think, like, you know, uh, to be like super explicit, like a lot of these things like should not exist and should not be legal. Um, You know, along those lines, right, I think that there's been a lot of ground seeded um, to this idea that we have to let companies innovate, um, like do massive amounts of harm, you know, facilitate genocide, Mm -hmm. like, you know, whatever it is. And I'm not trying to be flippant about that. Like, 
Um, you know, I think people know what I'm talking about when I when I when I say that. Right. right? That they get to inflict massive amounts of harm and then go back and like do some small uh, fixes or repairs or you know, do the minimal amount of, uh, of redress. Like we've as a society have like accepted that for a, a, like easily the last 20 years. I mean, mm-hmm. you could make arguments for much longer, but in terms of like, you know, kind of computational tools and like platforms, um, we've accepted that logic for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, yeah, we got to, abandon that right like the idea that you know and and i mean this comes up a lot you know david columbia and i talk about this all the time right just like the um to to assert that some technology shouldn't exist and shouldn't be allowed to exist yes um you know uh and that when you say that you get all kinds of ridiculous um nonsense objections (laughs) right like when you talk about and i I use i'll use this example forever, right? When you talk about facial recognition. So like, it was not that long ago that if you said it should be banned, you know, like people would try and like laugh you out of like that discussion, right? Can't ban math, right? Like, you know, right? Like, or like, it's already been invented, right? (laughs) Right? It's already been invented. Like you can't like put the genie back in that bottle, right? And it's fucking stupid. I mean, so like, there's a lot of problems with that, right? If we look at like harmful chemicals, right, that have been, you know, either banned or, or like widely regulated, like most people would not say, well, you can't ban chemistry, yeah. right? Like, because mm-hmm. again, like it's absurd, right? Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's an absurd argument, right? We do it all the time. Like, we, you know, societies, like, you know, all the time, like make decisions about what are kind of acceptable uses of particular, um, technologies you know um and then move forward and so but we have to be pretty explicit about that and and reject that the idea that once something's been put out into the world that we just have to let it run rampant um and figure out how to deal with the damage there's just still there's still this fanaticism this sort of like theological argument that like or feeling this vibe that Tech is special. It's our really special darling boy. And so we have to let it flourish whenever it wants. We can't, we can't be too strict with it. We can't limit it. We can't discipline it. We can't like do any, we can't say that it can't do this or that. And if it does make a mistake, you know, the first time it does it, that's our fault. The second time it does it, that is our fault. Not learning the lesson the first time. And then the third time and the fifth time and the 30th time, it's still our fault. And it's only like, it's only very long down the line after a huge chunk of it is baked in. It feels like people are like, okay, maybe like we shouldn't let this tech flourish. Right. But like you said, you know, there's all just because someone made something does not mean it should exist. In fact, most things that people decide what should be in the world should not be in the world. You know? Yeah. And the other thing we see a lot with AI and ML now Mm -hmm. is like the leaning into racist and nationalist tropes about why, these things should be allowed to proliferate, right? Like Zuck um, is one of the like um, main purveyors of this, right? Like the whole, like we have to achieve like, you know, machine learning dominance against China kind of narratives. So we can contain them again. Yeah. (laughs) Like Loki, that's always, that's also (laughs) the interesting thing too. It's like, we want like to say text shouldn't exist creates this, 
brain melt where they're like, well, why would you, you know, what about the economy or like, what about the the money you made? And then also like, well, how are we going to like stay on top? How are we going to dominate? Which really just means how are we going to contain, you know, or limit this other country from flourishing? Like that Eric Schmidt op-ed where he said, uh, what was it? That uh, we don't want a world uh, run on um, Chinese values. Mm -hmm. We want American values. I need you to elaborate a little bit more on that. Yeah. I know what you mean. And what he means is very clearly like he wants this world, this nice cushy world for him and a few other people look like him and have this and occupy the same halls of power as him to continue. Uh, because the fear is if China ascends in any meaningful way that threatens, you know, those power centers. Uh, then, like him and his him and his ilk are out, and they'll be replaced by someone, right? And they would, and they want, and they don't want that. Like I think they mask it or talk about it as if like there are real concerns they have about liberalism, about democracy, about political governance. But at the same time, I mean, these are also people who created projects that are threatening democracy and, yeah. and the liberalism exactly, yeah. and, and political governance that they say they value. So, uh, you know, who am I supposed to believe? Like, like my lying eyes or them? You know? Yeah. <laughs> this makes me think as well about a point that you made earlier about like uh, that rising floor of normalization, right? Like, like uh, you know, as these as as we become as these harms perpetuate, as we come become more aware of these this wide spectrum of harms the the floor of what's normal just rises and rises and rises right i'm thinking of two things so on, on one hand i'm thinking of um you know the new statesman just had that had that uh, report come out or that investigative article come out very recently about how um you know google in particular is funding a lot of uh like the leading tech policy institutes in europe right they're they're just Put, you know, funneling a bunch of money into into institutes and into uh, particular uh, specific professors, you know, and stuff like that. And there's a great quote in there from uh, Michael Ville, who's a, a lecturer in law at the University of College London, who, who studies, you know, critically a lot of this. And he said in that, and he uh, said in a quote to the New Statesman, by funding very pedantic academics in an area to investigate the nuances of economics online, you can heighten the amount of perceived uncertainty and things that are currently taken for granted in regulatory spheres. I think there's something really interesting here, and we've talked we talked about this on TMK before, but it's that treadmill of perpetual debate, right? Um, you're you're always debating something that's at the end of the day. No, this is this is not a debate. It's closed. <laughs> we know what to do, and we know what needs to be done. But there's but there is this perpetual debate which constantly keeps this uh, a live issue, right? Oh, we need to debate. Uh, the the biases of of machine learning or artificial intelligence, right? Oh, we need more examples. We need more uh, evidence. We need more studies. We need more debate. Uh, and this just goes on forever and ever and ever. While Google, Facebook, et cetera, et cetera, just continue doing it, right? They just continue doing it. Yeah. Like the second thing it makes me think of is like. You know, I, at the end of the day, I'm I'm done. I'm done with debate. You know, no, we need action. We need to do something because if we don't do something now and we wait until there's more debate, then that floor just gets higher and higher of what's normal, right? And you know, thinking about like gun crime, for example, right? Gun crime and you know massacres, you know mass shootings in the U.S. is just fucking normal now, right? Like that's yeah. just normal. 
But I think about, you know, where I live now and, you know, just got permanent residency in Australia. So I got to start bringing some more Australia into the podcast. Uh, it's my it's my national duty. <laughs> but, you know, I think of Australia, which has drastically different and highly restricted gun laws. Mm-hmm. And how did that come about? There was a, a you know the Port Arthur massacre, uh, which Port Arthur, Tasmania, in 1996. There was a massacre where one person killed 35 people and wounded 23 other people. And this was the by far the largest uh, you know uh, single mass shooting death event in Australia's history. And what did they do immediately after? They were like, "All right, no, no, no more guns for people." And everybody was everybody in in society was like. Oh yeah, no, we no, we don't we don't need we don't need this. We don't need these guns, you know. And so there was just immediately massive restrictions put on 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 you know ownership of guns, of specific types of guns. Now what what that shows me by analogy is that a swift action early uh has you know, that's when you gotta do it. You gotta do it early before it becomes normalized, right? Before people are like, oh, mass shootings are actually a normal part of, of living in society, right? Like, like that's just normal. Um, and you, you got to act early to, and then uh, immediately mitigates or prevents all of these future harms that are so predictable, right? But I don't know, like, I just think of uh, the, like the state of, of, you know, tech criticism or or research into tech ethics or whatever right now. Yeah. And it just seems like it's more interested in perpetual debate rather than doing the things that we just talked about need to be done, where it's like, no, some of this stuff needs to be illegal. Some of it should never exist. Like, we know what needs to be done here, right? Uh, it's that debate versus action. Yeah. I mean, you know, we could talk about ad tech, right? You know, and all the mm-hmm. discussions around that and like, owning your data and like, you know, transporting your data and all that. It's like, no, no, no. Like most of the stuff should not even, you know, like let's eliminate all data brokers, right? Like that's what we need to do. Like they shouldn't, that, that model shouldn't exist. Yeah, Yeah. I agree. I think that's right. Like I use the example of guns because it's like, you know, it really heightens it. But I think you're exactly right. Like that logic should apply to so much of this other technology, so much of these other things as well that, you know, have already caused a lot of harm and have a lot of very predictable harms baked into them. But it's like, no, at the end of the day, we just want to, people like Eric Schmidt just want us to keep debating it forever, right? Zuckerberg's like, no, man, they're in in the metaverse. There won't be (laughs) any problems, right? (laughs) If you get shot in the metaverse, you don't die in real life. That's the beautiful thing about the metaverse. (laughs) It's not like the Matrix in that way. (laughs) You got God mode on in the metaverse. (laughs) It's like, is that what we really need to hope for? Is that like, you know, the metaverse is going to save us? (laughs) Like like the, the perpetual debate. I tweeted this out uh, over the weekend, but I'll say here, it's like, I I worry like all of the time and energy and words wasted on talking about the metaverse 
it's either going to be, you know, another instance of some like, you know, inane murmurs of the billionaire class, right? Where they say something that's just like popped into their mind and everybody has to hop on it. Everybody has to talk about it uh, endlessly, right? You know, the, the New Yorker is going to have a long article on it, right? You know, the twi Twitter is going to be talking about it forever. Um, and, and at the end of the day, it's like either it's going to be a bunch of wasted uh, time and exhaustion talking about something that was probably never going to happen in the in the first place, right? Or or it happens and we all die in the metaverse, right? Like <laughs> it fucking sucks that that seems to be the only two options: <laughs> endless debate about something that's never going to happen, or endless debate about something that happens and then we all just then we're all trapped in the metaverse. <laughs> God, trapped in the metaverse. <laughs>I know we're kind of running up on time here. There's so much more to talk to, uh, with you about, Chris. We didn't we didn't even yeah. hop on. We didn't even talk about so many other things that we that we wanted to get to. Uh, yeah, I didn't get to hate on uh, remote proctoring. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a bunch of stuff. I don't know if you if you got some time. I'm more than happy to to, to end the episode talking about some ed tech. Um, and remote proctoring stuff. Uh, and I think it ties beautifully into a, a concept of yours that, you know, I, I should have mentioned at the beginning of the show, but coming in as a, as a late show treat uh, around digital redlining, right? This is something that you've been on, on, the, on, on, on the tip of for a very long time is um, this concept of digital redlining, which I think, you know, links up quite nicely, but uh, is also distinct from uh, imposed versus luxury surveillance. I don't know. Could you could you just talk to us a little bit about what is digital redlining um, and and give us a little bit of, of yeah in, like what 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 is it and and what give us some of uh, your work on digital redlining? Yeah, I mean, so I I may or may not have a thing coming out um, where I, I point out that um, one of the pieces that preceded mine was yours and I think Astra Taylor. You and Astra mm. Taylor had a piece in uh, the Nation. Yeah, where you use the term. Um, but uh, I wrote a thing. Um, so long story short, apology to anyone who's like heard this story a million times. But essentially, so I teach at a community college and my college was filtering the Internet. Um, and so there were all kinds of ways. I mean, anybody who's familiar with filters. Right. And this is like a very uncommon thing at colleges, like almost non-existent, except at my place. Um so what was happening was a lot of stuff that um, students and professors, for that matter, because they filtered it for everyone, wanted to do research on, um, we couldn't access on campus. And so that wound up being a lot of people. I mean, we have a nursing school, you know, like there's film study. There. Like there's all kinds of things that people would uh, look up on a college campus that they couldn't access. The example I always use is um, we were looking up, uh, the students were doing papers on revenge porn. Um, and now called, you know, more commonly called non-consensual intimate imagery. But when they started like looking, you know, use the search term revenge porn, like the search results just prevented, like acted as if the term porn didn't exist. And so just brought back all those results on like TV shows named revenge and the definition of revenge and things like that. Mm. And so it like really kind of set me on the road to thinking about a lot of this stuff, like what it means 
um, you know, because a lot of my students, a lot of students at my institution don't have internet or don't have like quality internet service at home or, you know, work a job or several jobs. And so when they're on campus is when they do their work. And so the inability to, to access information um, or to have that information heavily filtered, you know, set by the administration really affected how people could do their work, right? Like to the point that like if I wanted to show a red band trailer in my class, I'd have to pull it up on my phone. Cause mm-hmm. like the the filter on the computers in the classroom like wouldn't or you know, on the Wi-Fi, like I can even do it on my a laptop would prevent me from showing it. Um and so I you know it's come to mean um why like most of the time people use it in terms of broadband access, right? Like the, um, where telecoms decide to, um, place their services or not based on who can and can't afford broadband, um, is like, that's how typically people use the term. Like I use it like a little more wide application, which is basically like, um, tech policies and, and, um, investment decisions that disproportionately affect, um, you know, marginalized populations. I mean, the the classic example being Facebook and housing and job ads, right? That um, for a long time, yeah, I mean, probably still for all I know, right? Um, but for a long time, you could place ads on Facebook, uh, either housing ads or job ads, and restrict them in a way that would prevent, say, Black people from seeing them. Now, they claim they've addressed this. I mean, but as we know, with every claim that Facebook says they address, it basically... You know, there's like a period where they say they've addressed it and then a researcher or journalist like finds out that you can still do that thing. And then Facebook apologizes, you know, wash, rinse, repeat. Like, mm-hmm. um, So they claim to have addressed this. Like, as far as I know, like you can't currently do that. But like, you know, I don't, I'm not digging into Facebook um's code like uh, routinely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, it seems like the digital redlining is is kind of like you know, you get the bad while denied the good, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, like you, you, you get all the, you, you get, you know, all, all the, all the bad parts of, yeah, either not having broadband access or, or not be, or being restricted from, you know, seeing, yeah, advertisements for the good jobs or for, for homes or, you know, whatever, you know, the flip side of that is like, not only do you get the, the, you get the bad internet, you also get denied access to the good internet, right? Right, right. And as we've seen during the pandemic, I mean, again, like not that long ago, people used to deny this, but as we've seen during the pandemic, like a uh, lack of um, quality, you know, broadband, like can have like the uh, effects on people's health, on their um, f- both physical and mental, um, you know, like can affect employment, like all kinds of things, right? Like so much so that you could argue that in some cases it's life and death, right? And like not long ago, people um, like I personally was ridiculed for making like that claim. Um, Mm. But I don't, I think now a lot more people understand that to be uh, a pretty accurate claim. Yeah, especially when like broadband is is uh, now tied up to things like telehealth or or mm-hmm. or or doing your job uh, or going yeah. to school. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like another way that these uh the these life chances, as sociologists call it, right? Like the opportunities to to do things in your life to go down certain pathways are just like are are so so restricted. 
Um, and it does seem like, I mean, this ties into something that we talked about earlier as well, where it's like, um, and even if you get, you know, the privilege of like working from home or going to school from home or, or whatever, like, like the tools needed to do this are then like saddled with all of these really awful features, right? Yeah. No, I mean, which like kind of brings us to like a lot of the surveillance systems we were, you know, like we mentioned pre-show, like right about like workplace surveillance, like that has now become home surveillance because so many people are working from home, but also, um, you know, school surveillance systems, right? Whether that's like, um, you know, like the, again, like textbook example for me being a lot of like the remote proctoring systems that like do eye tracking and, um, facial recognition or, or face recognition do room scans, like, you know, do, um, that code, like people's facial movements or eye movements as abnormal, like their word, not mine and, and flag them for potential being potential cheaters, like all these things, right? Like both like, like classist, right. Um, racist and, and ableist. We're, we're going to have to have you come back for a whole episode devoted to talking <laughs> about ed tech. Cause you know, th- this is, I think when I first started following you on Twitter ages ago and we first started interacting, like it was around, like you were doing a lot of stuff around ed tech. And I think you've kind of like spun this out uh, much larger into looking at like surveillance in, in general and a kind of broader scope, but like, you know, uh, yeah, I always I always think of you as a as as you know one of the kind of early critics and and analyst of a lot of the ed tech um, education technology, which is now so normal and with this with the pandemic has just like like skyrocketed in terms of uh, of, of of its uptick in usage, uh, its intrusiveness, like all of that. Yeah, and. I, you know, I, I did start out doing a lot of ed tech stuff, but I mean, as you know, like, and as you all have discussed, like, like th- this stuff never stays, you know, in, in one realm, right? Like a lot of times, like if it's used in, in one institution or one like societal institution, it's often just kind of a lab for how to like, um, you know, expand it into others. Right. So mm. like if it starts, on incarcerated people, you know, like as it often does, like some of these systems, like how is it going to spin out into the rest of the population? If it starts on um, students, like how, how do we spin it out against the, you know, if it starts on gig workers, like, and so like, yeah, start starting like with ed tech just means that like I started with like a, a group that is often, you know, um, the site of experiments for a lot of this stuff. And it gets spun out to like all all these other areas. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a really great point to 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 end the episode on is this idea that like the yeah the, these communities are used as test beds, right? And and it goes back to something you talk you said at the beginning of the show where it's like you you have to go through these like great pains to show uh, everybody 
why this is harmful for you, right? Because it's like they don't, you know, most people don't don't either don't care or think they're immune from these effects uh, of of like yeah the, these systems of surveillance and social control that are used on whether it's students or welfare recipients or call center workers, right? These people with like the least amount of power in society to to do anything about it. Uh, and then, you know, it's like this delusion of privilege that says like, oh no, but, but that's not me. I, I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not a student. I'm not a gig worker. I'm not a cost center worker. I'm not a welfare recipient. So, so I, I don't have to worry about that. Right. Like I made good choices in my life, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right, like, right. no, no, motherfucker. these things are coming for you. Um, and yeah. they might be sold at a highly up, uh, marked up price as a luxury, but it's, it's still coming for you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, think about like, Frank Pasquale and uh oh gosh, what am I thinking of? Uh Gordon Hall and of, Frank Pasquale. The wellness wellness programs. Yes, yeah, that's what I was talking about, right? Yeah, wellness programs and like employee wellness programs. No, 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 that's that's exactly right, right? Like these wellness programs that are market marketed as like um, you know, we're all family here and we care about right. you, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm not your boss. I'm your friend. And I want you to be, I want you to be well. <laughs> yeah. Here's this tracker. Right? Yeah. Here's this tracker. And by the way, if you don't share all the data collected from this tracker with the uh, insurance company that we have a partnership with, um, then that's going to really affect your premiums. <laughs> it would be a bad idea. Right. Bad yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Friends share with friends. So I'm going to need that shy. data from you. <laughs> yeah. it reminds me of the meme that it was going around for a little while. And it was a, like a juvenile glazelle with a leopard with its paw around it's haunch and it was like looking at its face and it's like we don't need a union we're all family here (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah that's an i think that's a nice way to end to end this uh episode is it's coming for you (laughs) do something right i mean this is i i i wish we didn't have to and this goes back to a question you know edward was talking about like i wish we didn't you know have to tell people right like it's gonna harm you in order to mm-hmm. make them care about some of these things um but if if that's what we got to do like that's also true you know i mean it's like a like a kind of axiom of surveillance right that a lot of these things um have a disparate impact on marginalized populations um but i do think yeah like in a lot of ways there, it's coming for everybody yeah I mean, I think if there's one takeaway from 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 this episode is it's uh to to not be antisocial, right? Like, yeah, I mm-hmm. I completely agree with you, Chris. Like, like it it, it it's baffling to me to have to uh, explain to people why this is why this will be or already is harmful for you. When isn't it enough that it's like actively harming? a large amount of other people in the society that we all live in and share together. Right. Like, like don't be antisocial. Don't be a, uh, uh, don't be sociopathic. Right. Like, like have some empathy. Um, and I think, I just think a little bit of empathy goes a really long way in a system that actively tries to dissuade us or prevent us from having any empathy. Yeah. Or completely, you know, tries to co-opt it. And, and make it occur 
on their on their systems. Mm, yeah, uh, we're actually going to be starting uh, the empathy as a service um, <laughs> platform. <soon. laughs> it's it's yeah. going to be it's going to be TMK, but it's going to be this machine cares cares with yeah. a K. Send us an email if you're interested in getting in on the seed funding round. <laughs> oh man this this has been a really great conversation okay. chris and we will absolutely have you come back um sometime in the future to talk more about ed tech remote proctoring all of this stuff that we've only just touched on so uh i want to thank you so much where can people find you chris um do you have anything you you want to plug I don't. I mean, uh, you know, like uh, I'm on Twitter at Hypervisible. Um, uh, sometimes write stuff. Yeah, that that that's it right now. Like may, maybe there'll be some news soon, but like can't say just yet. Well, we'll we'll keep people abreast of that. I'm sure we'll be talking yeah. about it on TMK, and uh, definitely follow Hi- uh, Chris at Hypervisible. I mean, I I think one of the best follows on Twitter uh, for sure. Rights, of course. Yeah. Thanks again, Chris. I want to thank everybody for listening. Um, you can find more of TMK at Patreon.com/slash This Machine Kills for a premium episode every single week um, where we do even more deep dives into these kinds of topics. And this, this week uh, on, the, on the Patreon feed, we've got the last chapter of Langdon Winner's autonomous technology that we'll be discussing. Um, that's going to be a really, really fun episode. Really great um, talking about some, some foundational uh, kind of concepts in technological politics, talking more about Luddism, talking about technologies legislation. It's going to be good. So catch us over there. And uh, until then, later.
Antonio.